that's bad. All right. Um, I, when, I sent out the, when I sent out the email, I, my, my title was, was, was Christians and Authorities or Christians and Rulers, and, and then I realized that was a fairly boring title. So I, I decided to call it the Christians and the Crown. Christians and the Crown, and that's sort of got a little bit more of a, of a tangy edge to it, I hope. But I, I, I need to pray, so let, let's do that t- together. And have your Bibles open and we'll see what we can do with this passage. Father, we we come before your word this morning. We ask that it would speak to us and you to speak to us through it. And uh, that our hearts will be stirred and challenged and comforted and stretched and all these things. And uh, pray that our hearts might burn within us in order to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go across the lands, to the nations, even to those in authority. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to bring up a couple of pictures for you of different people. And I just want you to, uh, if you want to blurt it out, you can, but you need to be careful what you say. If, if you had one meeting, you only ever got one meeting with the people that I'm putting up on the screen, you're a Christian, you get one shot. One meeting with these people, what would you say? What would you say to these people? You had a meeting with Mark McGowan. What would you say? What would you say to Mrs. Arden, former Prime Minister of New Zealand? You got one meeting with her. What would you say? Do you know who he is? If you live in Boston, you should know he's the mayor in South Africa. A mayor is a horse, but we won't get confused. Uh, it always sounds bad. Uh, Gron Henley, what would you say to him? You probably talked to him about the sharks, right? How about to Libby Metham? What would you say to her? Opposition leader in WA. If you had one meeting with him, ooh, what would you say? Ooh, get a little close, doesn't it? And last but not least, what would you say to our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese? Now, what you're about to see this morning is how Christians in the Old and the New Testament, Christians like Nathan, Daniel, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul, we're going to see how they engaged with authorities, how they engage with the crown. And as you know, the, the whole subject of Christians and the crown or Christians and authorities, it can be a very emotive subject. And, and I've got something of a sort of a, a little bit of a twitch-o-meter here. As I say, Christians and the crown, some of you are starting to twitch. I, I can see it, the temperature starting to rise, and the, the little twitch-o-meter up here is getting a little bit twitchy. Paul does say in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, doesn't he? He does. He says that we are to submit to governing authorities. Let everyone submit themselves or be subject to governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And we are to submit. We know that. But there are also limitations to submission, aren't there? And we know that because in Acts chapter 4, we read this. Peter and John, they're speaking to the Jewish authorities, the Jewish crown. And they say, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? To 
you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. So when it comes to where the lines are, it gets pretty easy. If the crown says don't speak about Jesus, we say, sorry, can't do that. We will speak. But it gets a bit more tricky if the crown comes and says you should have a COVID jab. Well, you will be pleased to know this morning we're not going down that road. Ah, and you're all starting to relax a little bit. The twitchometer has, ah, oh, it's just started to settle. But let me ask you again. You get one meeting, one shot, one conversation with the following people. Mark, Jacinta, Grant, Libby, Vladimir, and Anthony. What would you say? Here's a very familiar verse, or part of a familiar verse, in Matthew 28 and verse 19, where it says, Therefore go, and these were the words of Jesus, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Let me ask you, do the nations include authorities? Do the nations include rulers and authorities? Should we be calling those in authority to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus? And if we would say yes, well, how exactly would we do that? Some of you might be very familiar with the name John MacArthur from Grace Community Church in California, USA. Last year, their leadership, particularly their eldership, they wrote an open letter to the governor, the new governor of California, a guy called Gavin Newsom, calling him to repentance and faith in Jesus. Should we be doing that? Should we be writing letters to our leaders calling them to repentance and faith? Well, let's turn as we bring our attention to the subject of 1 Timothy chapter 2, read for us by Caleb. And if you've got your Bible, open it up. And as you come to this passage that was read, it, it, it was, it's, it's very obvious that it's a, it's a call for us to pray for those in authority. But, but I think something gets amiss. Very often when we look at this passage and we use this to pray for our authorities, the very heart of what Paul is saying gets missed. And I think we can often pray not necessarily for the wrong things, but not for the, for the best things. Now, let me just show you what I mean. How many of you are Anglicans here? Any Anglicans here? Oh, half Anglican? Sort of Anglican? Well, I, oh, there's a bit of us in here. Now, you, if you're an Anglican, you'll know something about the, common, uh, the, the Anglican common book of prayer. And you'll know in that book that it's, it focuses very strongly on praying for authorities. And here's a sort of a general way in which the prayer book operates. This is how it prays. Heavenly Father, we lift up to you our land and its government. We ask you to give our leaders wisdom and resolve to do what is right and best for all her people. Give our president or prime minister or king uh, and, and their cabinet, his cabinet ability to lead rightly. We pray for all emergency service and medical workers that you will continue to strengthen and protect them in their task and so on and so on. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not, hear me rightly. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray that way, but don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he said, pray for authorities. So, let me put up the screen again, and uh, here's the first four verses. Look at them carefully. 
I urge then, Paul says to Timothy, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, just keep that up there, please, team, at the back there. Can you see that the primary focus of Paul instructing Timothy to instruct Christians to pray is the focus is to pray that they come to what? That they come to salvation. He, he, wants, he wants us to pray that the men and the women that rule over us come to salvation. Now, I hope this doesn't sound heretical. But merely praying is not enough for authorities to come to salvation. Because people come to faith, yes, through the prayers of God's people and through the what? The proclamation of the gospel. Look at verse 4. Who wants God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, including rulers, and to come to the knowledge of the, the truth. That's another way of saying the gospel. God our Savior wants our rulers. He desires that our rulers come to know Christ through the prayers of His people and through the proclamation of the gospel. Now let me start. I've got about 10 headings here. It's going to be rapid fire. Let's start here. And you're going to get something of the shock of this passage. The historical context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1-7. to When Paul writes to Timothy to say to Timothy, pray for the rulers and proclaim the gospel to them, the authority was a Roman emperor by the name of, anybody know? Nero. When you read about this man, Nero, quite frankly, he was simply the rank, worst kind of human being. Let me tell you about Nero. He assassinated his own mother, who was also his lover. Nero then married his stepsister. He divorced her, banished her, had her wrist slit, and then had her suffocated and decapitated. Nero then married another wife, but murdered her by kicking her to death when she was pregnant. He then married again, but he married a young man who was castrated. Nero took pleasure in tying people up, mutilating them naked in full view, and then at the round age of 30 years old, he committed suicide. Do you see who Paul is urging Timothy to pray for? For men as despicable as Nero. Timothy, when you teach God's people to pray, and proclaim the gospel. You teach them to pray for people like Nero to be saved. And you pray for how you might get the gospel to these sort of men. You pray for mass murdering people in authority like the Putins of this world, the Robert Mugabe's, the Pol Pot's, the Joseph Stalin's, the Adolf Hitler's, and the Chairman Mao's of this world. Now please understand that this is not something new. This is not some sort of new idea that Paul's bringing in. In fact, this thread of, of both praying for and confronting rulers is a thread that runs right through the whole of the Old and the New Testament and even runs into 
Christian history. Let me give you some examples. Let's start with this one with David and Nathan, or Nathan and David. You might remember that King David was, 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 was God's king. So he was a man after God's own heart, king over Israel. And you might remember that David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He unlawfully took her as his wife by having Uriah killed. And you can go and read the whole sordid, messy detail as it unwrapped. And David hid this, so held it inside and, 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 and until the moment that God sends Nathan to David to confront him. And here's what Nathan says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 from verse 7. So Nathan says to David, you're the man. This is what the Lord God, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, David, the sword would never depart from your house because you despise me. And you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Let me ask you this. How much courage do you think it took for Nathan to confront the king of Israel over his sin? Well, of course, he was the prophet, right? And God sent the prophet. Let me ask you again. How much courage do you think it took to confront the king of Israel on his sin? Let's go to uh, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. How much courage do you think it would take to confront the most powerful man on the face of the planet of that time with his wickedness? Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked man. Wicked. We know from Daniel chapter 3 that Nebuchadnezzar erected statues to himself and wanted people of the world to worship him. But when you read history, Nebuchadnezzar goes down as one of the most evil men in history. Let me tell you about him. He sexually assaulted his own mother in the presence of his stepfather. He had his stepfather experience a slow and painful death by cutting up his body parts one by one. In the book of Chronicles, we're told that when Nebuchadnezzar captured the Jewish king Zedekiah, he took Zedekiah, had Zedekiah's three sons killed in front of him, and then he gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. According to the Jewish Talmud, Nebuchadnezzar imprisoned many kings, and he would place a bet each day on the next king that he would sexually assault. When David... When Nebuchadnezzar gets the dream and Daniel interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, here's what Daniel says to him. Nebuchadnezzar, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be that your prosperity will then continue. How much courage do you think it took 
for Daniel to confront wicked Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go to uh, John the Baptist and Herod in the New Testament. You'll be familiar with the story, so just a little snippet from Mark 6. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested and had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. As you know, John the Baptist is arrested. As you probably know, he lost his head. The reason he lost his head was because when he called out Herod uh, and Herodias, Herodias bore a grudge against John the Baptist. And when the opportune time came, she had him beheaded and killed. And you can go and read Mark 6 and get the story. John the Baptist calls a powerful governor to repentance and faith for his sin. And pays with his life. Let's go to Paul and Felix. As you know, Paul loved being in jail. That's the apostle. And uh, he visited most of the jails in the, in the known area of Asia Minor. And uh, this time we pick it up in Acts chapter 24. Paul's in Rome. He's in jail. And he, he comes before the governor named Felix. And this is what it says. This is Luke recording for us. Luke 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix suddenly got afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At that time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Felix uh, was married to, as mentioned, to Drusilla. Drusilla was a Jewess. From history, we know that uh, Drusilla was, uh, uh, she was seduced by a sorcerer away from her husband to get to Felix. And we know how corrupt Felix is, don't we? Because he was a man that was hoping that Paul would give him bribes. Now, did you notice what Paul said to Felix when they got into one another's proximity? Did you see it? Well, just take a look at it in verse 25 again, as Paul talked about what? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. But here's what you've got to understand. This was not Paul, uh, Paul standing in front of Felix and in generality saying things like, well, oh Felix, well, you know, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Humbly and gently, it would have been, Felix, you need to look at your sin. You need to have a look at your godless immorality. You need to take a look at the wife that you've taken that should not be yours. You need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness or you will face the judgment of God. How much courage does it take to call a ruler to repentance? Well, have a look at Paul and Agrippa. We pick it up in Acts 26 where Paul, no surprise, is still in jail and 
You read the story, eventually King Agrippa and his wife Berenice, they come along and sort of pomp and ceremony and the whole, the whole bang shoot. And uh, we pick it up, Acts 26, 19. And uh, so then King Agrippa, this is Paul speaking, he eventually gets an audience with Agrippa and he says, he says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem, all Judea, and to the Gentiles. I, I preached... And this is Paul again to Agrippa. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Agrippa, King Agrippa, had a wife named Berenice, uh, who was not actually his wife. She was actually his sister, uh, who happened to be a consort. Berenice, according to history, was unfaithful as a consort, but she kept on returning to her brother in some sort of sick, ancestral, codependency kind of way. Is it not remarkable that Paul had the courage to confront Agrippa with his godlessness, calling him to repentance and faith in Jesus? You realize something that all these, all these rulers, even King David, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, Felix, Agrippa, they had the power of death over the people who spoke to them. They could merely click their fingers. That person would be dead. Do you remember the story of Esther? You remember that? Remember how powerful Xerxes was? He just by mere look, when the eunuch saw the look on his face, Haman was dead. That is the power these men had. But here's what we've got to see. Nathan, Daniel, John the Baptist, Paul, many others. Why did they do what they did? Because they desired the salvation of all people, including rulers, including authorities, including some of the most wicked men and women on the face of of the planet. They did not step back from calling out their sin. They didn't come at it like in some sort of self-righteous judgmentalism. But they called them to repentance and faith. Because our God is a saving God. He desires all men to be saved, even wicked rulers. You might say, well, are there any, sort of, any examples outside of the Bible of Christians that have sort of, sort of followed in that pattern? Let me, let me give you a couple of examples from Christians in history, and uh, you'll see some of the names coming up there. Firstly, take, take for example, Justin Martyr, 8150. He, he wrote an open letter to the Roman Emperor Antius, Antonius Pius, in which he defended the Christian faith. A guy called Polycarp, 180-8155, he called the governor to repent or face eternal fire in judgment. Uh, the, the, the governor responded by burning Polycarp at the stake. You'll know the name Athanasius, to whom the Athanasian creed was credited. He was banished for 17 years for defending the deity the divinity of Jesus Christ. In the 5th century, John Chrysostom he confronted the empress for her sinful lifestyle and he died on his way into exile. 
And you might know with Martin Luther, 1521, he comes before the, uh, the, the, the Roman emperor uh, Charles V. He calls Charles V to, to repent of his sin and turn to Christ. Luther was sentenced to death. Well, fortunately, his, the supporters of Luther then kidnapped Luther, and Luther went into hiding. What drove, what drove these people to have such courage to call these people to repentance and faith? I want to show you their hearts. And I'm going to show you their hearts in the heart of the Apostle Paul. So take a look at this. If you had your Bible open, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is that section we read, but we just back up a little bit into the context. We go back into chapter 1. And before Paul writes about how Timothy needs to pray for and proclaim the gospel to rulers, he talks a little bit about himself. And here's, here's how Paul describes himself, and, and you'll pick up the heartbeat. Paul says to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he's considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing. What drove men like Paul and others to confront wicked rulers is that they knew the grace of God in their lives as wicked people. Paul, who used to be Saul, he used to be a wicked man. He was self-righteous to the core. He was bigoted. He was violent. He was a blasphemer. He was a murderer. Jesus Christ takes hold of him from heaven and saved him and, and changes him. And whenever Paul opens up about his life, he's not afraid to share about his sinful credentials. Here's what Paul is saying. If Jesus Christ can save a wicked man like me, if he can save a bigoted, violent, blaspheming, murdering, self-righteous bigot like me, he can save anyone. He can turn anyone around. He can even save the Putins, the Nebuchadnezzars, the Hitlers, and the Albanese's, and the Mark McGowan's of this world who have no fear of God before their eyes. Now one of the questions I hope that you might be asking is this. So are there any examples of wicked rulers actually repenting after being confronted with the gospel? Are there any examples? In most of the cases, we just don't know how it turned out. We don't actually know how they ultimately responded. But I will tell you this. I'm quite sure there are going to be some surprises in heaven when you get there. By some of the people you meet, you go, No way! How the... How did he get in here? 
How did she get in here? Do you really want the Putins, the Nebuchadnezzars, and the Hitlers in heaven? Honestly? Really? Well, perhaps the most stunning repentance from one of the most wicked men on the face of the earth was who? If you remember Nebuchadnezzar. These are his final words recorded for us in history. A man of such despicable, despicable behavior. At the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and remember, this is after the vision and after the interpretation, and God has humbled this man to almost cow-like status, eating grass in the field. He says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Let me just stop there for a moment. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you go from insanity to sanity. That's what happens. You become sane. The world is insane. We're sane. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. This is astonishing. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That's all on there. How about meeting old Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Do Do you remember Jonah and the wicked Ninevites? Remember them? The Ninevites were the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a godless, ruthless, violent, heartless nation. They had leaders like Sennacherib and a guy called Ashurbanipal. When you read about that man in history, it makes your tassels tangle. makes your hair curl. He was so wicked. And after God sends Jonah the prophet to the Ninevites, Here's what happens in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 6. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Wow. In the New Testament, we don't get many examples of rulers repenting, but, but there was, you might remember the Jewish ruler, Sothenes, he was converted. But here's a, here's a wonderful one. Uh, on the island of, of Cyprus, uh, the proconsul, the governor there was a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus. And look what it says. It says, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Acts thirteen twelve. So, where do we go from here? What do do we do? How do we respond? Let me give you four. Here are four responses. Christians in the crown, part one, once we were. What do I mean? Whether rulers past present or future are wicked. Whether there are other people that we know that are so despicably evil, can you and I never forget that once we were, 
once we were. What do I mean? Here's how Paul describes every Christian before they became a Christian. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We may not have done the things that others have done, but we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. We hated or being hated and hating one another. See, when you think about wicked rulers and their salvation, we must never forget that once we were, what? Dead in our sin and transgressions. And never forget that it was the grace of Jesus Christ that found us. And let me put it to you this way. That if the grace of Jesus can save a wicked sinner like you, He can save anyone. If God can save me, He can save anyone. See, these words of Paul to Timothy should be our words. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me the worst of sinners, there it is again, Christ Jesus might display His immense patience as an example for those who would believe in Him and receive eternal life. As you contemplate, as you mold this message, as you look at the thread that runs through Scripture, please do not ever forget the grace of God on you, a dead sinner. Before you look at someone and say, no way are you going to be there. Well, you wouldn't say that loud. You might say it in your heart. Two, we obviously to pray. When we pray, we, we, we're not, it's not wrong to pray for generalities at the emergency services and the fire services and the water services and everything else goes okay. That's okay. But we ought to pray very specifically by name for our rulers. Pray for Grant Henley. Pray for Libby Metham. Pray for Mark McGowan. Dare I say it? Pray for Daniel Andrews. Pray for Anthony Albanese. Pray for Putin, Biden, Trump, and the King Ong Yungs of this world. Pray for them. Pray that they come to salvation. Pray that the gospel goes to them. And I, I know, I don't think anybody's getting a call here saying, please come and have a, a meeting with me. I don't think we're that important, right? But maybe we have to send that letter. Maybe we have to write that letter to Libby, to Mark, to Grant. Pray. Are we praying for them? Well, as I said, it wouldn't sound heretical, but, but praying is not enough. We have to pray and proclaim. And you know, you know what the... You know what the early church did when the heat got turned up? Do you know what they did? When the persecution got up on Peter and, Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, do you know what happened? 
all the, all the Christians went into hiding, right? Not quite. Look at this. Peter and John have been arrested and they, and they sort of eventually get back to, to, to their people in the house and it says, and here's, here's how the, the church was praying, the first church, early church. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you're anointed. They're praying. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Right, here's how they pray. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Would you pray that we have boldness, courage, boldness to proclaim the gospel to whoever Whenever, however, to the authorities, of course, to our neighbors, to our work colleagues, to our families, to our children. And remember Nathan with David? We sometimes have to go to Christians who are walking away or down the wrong path or caught in sin and we have to go like Nathan to David and say, come back to the Lord. Stop sinning. Repent. Turn. Come back. It doesn't matter who it is. Whoever they are, wherever they are, however we can do it, Calling sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ or face the judgment. That's our gospel. So let me give you a couple of verses and I'll finish with my fourth application. Remember these words in Luke 15, 7, I tell you that in the same way There'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here's my fourth application for you. How about you? How about you this morning? Do you need to hear the call of God? Repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus for His mercy and forgiveness and grace. Or you will face the judgment of a holy God. I'm going to ask the music team to come up.
We're going to sing a song. I'm going to ask you then to sit. And I will close this prayer. This, I will close the service with prayer in line with this message. Would you please stand?